0: Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. And I'm joined today by
1: Giselle Donnelly. I'm a
0: senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Dali hatchs placeholder, um, because um, he is unable to join us today. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we're thrilled to be re- joined by General Ben Hodges, who served as Commanding General, United States Army, Europe, and is currently Senior Advisor with Human Rights First. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. General Hodges, Ben, uh, it's good to have you back. Uh, I look forward to asking you what it actually takes for me to, at some point soon, hopefully buy a house in Crimea. (laughs) But before... But before we get there,
1: <laughs> Wow, I didn't see that one come on.
0: There you go. Um, I'm already making theoretical plans, you know, making savings, um putting savings aside and all of that. but i and I'm sure you do too. Um, but before we get there, what we're actually looking at primarily today and sort of counting down, though we don't know when the deadline is, is the Ukrainian much-announced counter-offensive. Um, we've seen over the last few days already some promising explosions here and there. But beyond that, we want to hear your sort of take on the counteroffensive. What do you expect to happen? When do you expect it to happen? And of course... What are the shortcomings that we're faced with?
2: Well, what a privilege uh, to join y'all. Thanks for this. I'm grateful for it. So there's no doubt that Crimea is the decisive terrain for this war. And so the counteroffensive, whatever it looks like whenever it happens, ultimately will have to lead to the isolation and then liberation of Crimea. Now uh, you know some people have mistakenly referred to it as the spring offensive. I don't think it was ever going to be in the spring because I don't think that the terrain would allow it wouldn't have the trafficability needed. But I have to say that Ukrainian general staff has done a superb job of protecting information. we, we know more about Russian forces than we do about Ukrainian forces. And um, of course, that's the way it should be. I I should not know the when, the where, the how that Ukraine, if they're going to do it, will launch some sort of counteroffensive. But I do imagine that they have done a good job of using the minimum necessary force to keep holding Russians in Bakhmut and what we would call doctrinally an economy of force mission, which sounds kind of sterile when in fact Ukraine has suffered a lot of casualties there, but it was necessary in order to buy the time. To build up a large armored force that would be capable of penetrating these Russian linear defenses for a decisive operation. Now, general staff will do this when the conditions are set. Those conditions, of course, include the weather and the, the ground. But also, um, have they sufficiently disrupted and neutralized some of the Russian advantages in terms of command and control, logistics, artillery air defense, and have they sufficiently confused the Russians about when and where this might actually happen? And then of course, are they ready themselves? Are Ukrainian forces ready? I suspect they have a lot more armored brigades than we actually know they have. I think they've been accumulating, building up capability over the last many months, both with their own armored uh, formations, as well as a very large amount of Russian tanks and BMPs they've captured. And of course, over over the last several months, a lot of Western provided equipment has been arriving and Ukrainians have been training on it. I don't want to overstate this. And I think still several more Weeks are needed before they really are ready to go, but it's not inconsequential the amount of tanks, Bradleys, Martyrs, uh, other armored vehicles, self-propelled artillery, engineering capabilities, etc. So let me say one more thing and then I'll pause you know, there's about a nine hundred kilometer front. They're not going to attack that. They don't they don't need to. They could kill every Russian soldier within two hundred kilometers of Bakhmut. It would not change anything. But you liberate Crimea, that changes everything. And so I think they're going to look for one, two, or three places to attack on a on a narrow front where you can achieve overwhelming combat power on a narrow front that is what we call combined arms. It's artillery, it's engineers, it's uh, tanks and mechanized infantry that will be able to penetrate these Russian defenses. And like you guys and all of your listeners, you know, we look at video all the time of these Russian trenches. And when I look at them, what I see are ditches. I don't see heavy overhead cover. And the soldiers that are in those ditches are the same unlucky, poorly trained and poorly led Russian troops that have been getting hammered everywhere else. And so, yes, it's going to be very difficult. Yes, there will be casualties, but I I think the general staff will have done a good job of setting conditions, and they will pick the right places and time to do this.
1: Ben, I want to, before we get into the Crimea analysis, just try to put myself in the position of President Zelensky and his advisors. There's a a calculus that they must be uh, weighing that says, what will look enough like a success to ensure that Western support is continuing. Because, you know, uh, it it could always be the case that this is kind of a one campaign victory. I mean, that's always a possibility, but that would be sort of against the odds and quite amazing if that were to happen. And that that involves a trade-off, you know, right? You're right that, you know, (laughs) There's not much in the Eastern Donbass that's left that's worth having and never was really all that great to begin with. But if, you know, sort of in the political sphere, that could be something that is easier to achieve in terms of... The expenditure of resources, but is received in Washington and Germany and elsewhere as something of a success, and thus support for Ukraine is reinforced for the longer haul. How much do you think that would weigh into Ukrainian decision making? Even even though they've said many times that you know, they, they regard Crimea as the you know the decisive uh, victory that that they seek.
2: Yeah, I don't know what huge benefit they would gain if they chose to go after liberating more of Donbass area, for example, in, instead of Crimea. Um, I mean, Crimea is like a, a dagger pointed at the belly of Ukraine. As long as the Russians have that, they will always be able to launch attacks. And, and candidly, the fact that we continue to resist giving Ukraine longer-range precision weapons, something beyond the range of 90 kilometers, we have, in effect, created sanctuary for Russia and Crimea. And, and I don't think that they, can, they want to tolerate this. Certainly, from an economic standpoint, they can't tolerate Russia having Crimea because they'll block access to Azov, and they'll constantly disrupt shipping in and out of Odessa and Mykolaiv. So, I mean, you make a, a, a fair point that the goal is only to keep Western support going to, to demonstrate some progress, I don't. I don't know that. That's what they've been saving up and preparing for. Is something like that. Uh, I, of course, I could be wrong. I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know any of this. But when I look at, when I think of the the opportunity that's in front of them now, the chance. Well, I think Russia is in terrible shape. I mean, they're they're in bad shape, and the chance to to create a decisive breakthrough, penetrate all the way to the Azov coast, for example, isolate Crimea. We know from centuries and centuries of warfare that there's a psychological component. You know, if you don't want to be there fighting to begin with, and then you see your side getting crushed, or you're getting bypassed...
1: You're not happy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how how much enthusiasm those uh, troops will have to continue staying there. And so uh, I think the general staff is weighing all of these factors. And... I, I do think, and of course, you guys know there. Um the, uh, the Congress is working on a resolution now that has a lot of bipartisan support that would require or that would press the administration to declare, what is our objective? What, what is the end state that we want? that's Frankly, that's what's been missing is that the administration, despite all the incredible good work they've done, they stopped short of saying, we want Ukraine to win. Because if they would do that, all the excuses about ATACMS and F-16s and Abrams, those would all disappear. Because then we'd be committed to helping Ukraine win. That that's what's really needed and I think actually there's a lot more bipartisan support for this than than maybe what we think.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would I'll shut up soon, but I would agree that at least the support in the US Congress, the um... You know, sort of the mega get out of Ukraine people had a had a bill that there was only ten cosigners to in the whole house. So I think that's those guys make a lot of noise, but they don't have too many too many votes. Just one last thing. So you know, there was this narrative that popped up over the last few months that this is Ukraine's one big shot. You know, if they don't, and of course it's it's never perfectly defined. You know, it's like if they don't win now, uh, you know. The game's over, which is ludicrous on his face. But for again, for for those people who are fence sitters in Europe and in the United States, who are looking for an excuse to back out of this, uh, you know, sort of figuring out a way to take that off the table might have some political uh, attraction for for the Ukrainians. But uh, yeah, I basically ag- agree that you know, Donbass offensive probably isn't worth the.
0: Let's then stay for a minute on that track and then, as promised, get to Crimea. Ben, you highlighted um, very eloquently how this is supposed to be a strategic decision, including weapons and the aim, but it's a political decision. So with this political kind of dilemma in mind that we're looking at in the Biden administration and beyond, of course, in Europe, but the Biden administration has been leading, the United States has been clearly leading on uh, equipment and on strategy. The question is, so we have, and we can, we can talk about the equipment and the shortcomings in terms of equipment that um, the Ukrainians have um, from the West overall, but say they have, have sufficient counter-offensive to break um, the land bridge, to break the land connection between mainland Russia and Crimea, say they make it all the way to the Azov Sea this summer, late summer, whenever that is, say they take significant strategically uh, important territory back. But I don't think and correct me if i if, if you think i'm wrong i don't think they will be able this summer to take all of ukrainian territory back whether it's Crimea or not. And and we'll go into that in a second. So the counteroffensive this summer is successful, according to the Biden administration and general views observers. With that, in your understanding, because you're watching so closely how the Biden administration and other allies are reacting and politicizing this, do you think that if The the counteroffensive is successful. The argument would be easier to be made to convince the administration and beyond that they need the equipment that we haven't given them already, long range, maybe even fighter jets um, for the next season, for the next non-mud season right where we will be approaching the mud season in the fall the counter-offensive is limited then comes the winter then comes the next year election year um, here do you think that if the, the counter-offensive is successful we will be in a situation in which we can continue to push for ukraine for ukraine to get all of its territory back or do you see the pressure so significantly from what Giselle calls the fence-sitters that the West will start pressuring Ukraine for peace negotiations?
2: First of all, I, I don't think like that at all. I think this is, um, the Ukrainians are not going to stop. They're, they're not making decisions based on, you know, hoping that they can accomplish enough so that everybody sticks with them. I mean, they... They can see that after nine years, Russia still only controls 16% of Ukraine, and that if they can liberate Crimea, there won't be a lot of enthusiasm in the uh, so-called separatist territories for continuing to do what they're doing. Uh, I think liberation of Crimea will unleash so many other things that will be happening on the other side that it really could have that sort of decisive effect. Uh, I absolutely believe if we gave Ukraine what they needed, that Crimea would be liberated by the end of this summer. And then once that's done, Donbass follows later, it's less important that it gets done right away. Now, of course, I could be totally wrong. I, I had expected that be by the end of last year that we would have, that Ukraine would have gotten back to the 21 February line. Uh, They got close, but they didn't get all the way there. And so I think now they're in a much better position. And look, the Russians, you know, we always say the enemy has a vote. The Russians, after nine years, still have not figured out the right command and control structure. So that means because they don't have coherent command and control, they don't have a coherent plan. Their logistics structure is in tatters. Their defense industry is in tatters. The Air Force has still not managed to gain air superiority despite having every Possible advantage. They have not destroyed a single train or convoy bringing ammunition or equipment from Poland into Ukraine. This is day one stuff. They haven't been able to do that. The Russian Black Sea Fleet does nothing except launch missiles against fixed targets. So I don't see any bright lights on the horizon for the Russian side. And we need, I have to say, I'm very frustrated with the Pentagon that they keep talking about, oh, we don't know if the offensive will be that successful. (laughs) It'll be a self fulfilling prophecy if the Pentagon doesn't give Ukraine what they need. And, and so I, I haven't figured out yet, and maybe I'm just short-sighted or too attached to this, but I haven't been able to figure out why the Pentagon is so reluctant to think in terms of how Ukraine is going to win and getting them Atakum. Ground launch, small diameter bombs, Gray Eagle drones, all the kind of things that right now, just think if Ukraine had Atakum, the Black Sea Fleet would have already had to leave Sevastopol because it's exactly 300 kilometers from Odessa to Sevastopol. So that they would have already been out of the fight. There'd be no Russian airplanes flying out of Saki. So I, I don't understand this reluctance. You know, uh, we we should not be afraid to win.
0: Then let me ask you another question, a disciplined short question this time. <laughs> and that is, with the equipment that the Ukrainians now have from us and from the Russians, how can they take back Crimea in this summer if they only have 90 kilometers? So
2: I, I see it happening in three sort of steps. The first step, of course, is the isolation of Crimea. That means cutting the uh, so-called land bridge Primarily with land forces, but you can also do some of this with, uh, with weapons that are in range now. They've already been hitting Melitopol. You know, if you start uh, hitting the bridges and, and uh, ammunition storage places along the way, you can begin the isolation of the Crimean Peninsula. That's the first part. The second part then is to bring up, almost in like 18th century medieval siege warfare where you bring up the the, weapon, the artillery that can then range. And so this becomes a sort of an incremental approach to get weapons up there such as the 90 kilometer GMLRS that are launched from the High Mars. That's how you begin to make it untenable. And then when when the conditions are set and only the general staff will know, then you will have both a a ground force that has to enter the peninsula, but also uh, I think the Ukrainians will have a lot of amphibious capabilities um, that will be able to uh, attack Crimea from uh, not so you don't have to go just over that isthmus, but also different places along the coast. I I just spoke today with a a Ukrainian person who would be in a position to know, and he Absolutely, they have the capability to do more than just a direct land assault, and I, I think the Ukrainians will have uh, will be very clever in how they do this, and it won't look anything like what we might imagine it will.
1: I think that last point, and and it won't be anything at all like what the Russians have faced so far. I mean, Ukraine has fought this war sort of by hook and by crook uh, from the start, and uh, you know the actions have been very successful, but again incremental small scale, just based on, you know, what what and improvisation, you know, very good improvisation by the Ukrainian uh, people in the Ukrainian army, but they've never been able to bring together the kind of combat power that they now have. And especially Russian forces will, especially and especially inexperienced Russian forces won't have experienced the weight of attack that they're almost certain to get shortly. So, you know, while... Well, what we've seen over the last 15 months or so is generally indicative of the gap between the two combatants. I think that gap—and we, we haven't really seen it manifest on the battlefield yet—but the, the qualitative gap— it is so much greater now than it was even six months ago. It could be greater than it is, but I, I think being in the path of a Ukrainian attack is, is going to be pretty miserable for whoever you know, finds themselves there. And, and plus, the, the Russian ability to move forces you know, once, once the attacks begin, you know, to, to mo- shuttle units across the battlefield, I think is going to be a real challenge for them. Their lines of communication are exposed, you know, especially along the coast, quite a bit. So, you know, fixing the Russians in place seems like a really achievable goal for the Ukrainians.
2: Yeah, I would would agree with that.
1: Ben, let's do a little arithmetic. It's been, you quite rightly pointed out that the Ukrainians, as always, have really good operational security. But there have been, you know, there is still a lot of st- stuff in the open sources that a lot of people are very assiduously tracking. I've seen estimates over the last week or so that the Ukrainians might have altogether as many as 30 brigades worth of uh, force to devote while, while still, you know, holding on elsewhere. Does that make sense to you? That is a lot more than I might have thought a couple of couple of weeks or even a
2: couple of months ago. It's, I think it's entirely feasible. Uh, you know, Ukraine does not have a manpower problem. Now, you'll have different levels of experience and training and equipping and, and so on. I mean, if you think about it, Ukraine started not from zero 14 months ago, but... I mean, they really have had to do a lot of new things in just over a year, which is an incredible feat of organizational effort, the logistics, making sure that every soldier, man and woman, has a helmet, body armor, boots, you know, a weapon knows how to use it is assigned to a unit and, and they know how to do medical stuff so i'm sure they have more than what we think but it to me it's pure speculation on how many are out there what i am sure of is that wherever they do decide to launch their counteroffensive, if they do they will they will do it in such a way where they have overwhelming combat power and uh, and they'll achieve that with mass but also by deception doing things to fix the russians in other places and uh, i think based on what i have seen over the past fourteen months I think that they will they will do quite well. This is what we call the operational level of war you know a campaign and the ukrainians have demonstrated to me that they understand Clausewitz as well as anybody and and they know how to do this and and we will see them i would i would hate to be a russian soldier sitting in a trench right now
0: before we let you go i want to ask you something else um slightly away from the operational more into the long term but i think um also very relevant as we're looking in, at how the conflict may can evolve with implications really transatlantic and and global and that is china i've heard over the last few months several people on the hill asking people me and others can you please try to connect increasingly china with russia to make both the hill and europeans understand that this is a problem Um, and that we cannot disconnect the two. So I want to try to enlist you for that effort and ask you just now, um, Xi Jinping called for the first time and there's a big fuss around it. And I'm about to go on Romanian TV after this, explaining why this is not something good. But combining this with the battlefield, we know that Russia and China have a no-limit partnership. We know that China has been likely delivering already at least dual-capable equipment and that they don't want to see Russia losing, right? Um, And so if we're looking at a successful counteroffensive, how do you see? And China digesting that? Do you think that we might be faced in Europe and beyond um, with the possibility of China becoming a more active player in this conflict, delivering significant military capabilities to Russia in an effort to reduce our stockpiles and not let Russia lose? So
2: I am sure that there are lots of uh, communications at all different levels between the U.S. and China, between the China and other countries for a variety of different reasons. Um, I think this uh, so-called friendship without limits has demonstrated that there are lots of limits and that uh, China and Russia are not allies in the in the true sense of the word, but that Russia, China sees Russia as its permanent gas station and um I actually think that they want to see Russia collapse so that they can get unlimited access to all of Russia's resources, as well as the huge tracts of land that used to be their territory. But I don't think they want to see a catastrophic collapse that might happen as a result of Ukraine liberating Crimea and and defeating Russia on the battlefield. I think they'd rather see a much slower, gradual, controlled sort of crash that they can steer. They don't want to see the West being successful and responsible for doing this. They want to see, I think they want to see us struggle and so on. Uh, but I do think that they, would, they want unlimited access to Russia's uh, territory and, and resources. I am skeptical so far that China is actually delivering meaningful material support, and I think because they don't want to get U.S. sanctioned. You're probably right, Yulia, that they are providing some dual-purpose te- technologies and things that could be laundered through another country, perhaps. I'm sure they're not pure in this regard, but I, I don't imagine we're going to see boatloads of ammunition, for example, or those kind of things that... It would be difficult to hide that uh, from, from us, uh, I would certainly hope. Now, uh, another way to connect this to China, of course, is that the Chinese are watching to see, are we, are we the West willing to do what's necessary to make sure that Ukraine wins? If, are we really serious about protecting respect for sovereignty, respect for human rights, freedom of navigation, uh, transparency in international law? Things that matter to America, to Germany, to European countries for trade—are we are we willing to to protect those things? Because that's what's at stake. And if we're not, then I think the Chinese probably think, okay, if they're not willing to stick together in Europe, where it's much easier to do it, will they will the U.S. and others really be willing to do this in the Indo-Pacific region, where it will geographically, physically, be much more difficult to stop them? I don't think a war with China is inevitable. In fact, I, I'm, I'm more positive that that won't happen now than I was even a year ago, assuming that we help Ukraine win and that we uh, have strong capabilities. Uh, I mean, this is old-fashioned deterrence, that we do what's necessary to deter a conflict in China.
1: Yeah, if I could just pile on that, I, I, I quite agree. You know, when you see the Japanese seriously beginning a program of rearmament, and the South Koreans getting together with the Japanese, and the South Koreans talk about maybe building a nuclear force. And you see Europeans talking about the need to have some sort of Indo-Pacific presence. You know, if you're looking at this, you know, from long range in Beijing is what you see is the ideological West or the political West, you know, slowly but surely pulling together in a way that is likely to increase China's reluctance to, uh, you know, they, they see that Russia has failed miserably in this, or a great cost. And that's got to give them a little bit more pause than maybe they would have. had. And and, and their diplomacy is kind of flailing as well. The the Chinese ambassador to France is
2: our best ally
1: uh, over the last week in terms of, uh, you know, solidifying uh, Western resolve.
2: Yeah, I'd hate to be the Chinese ambassador to Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania to discover that I was in a country that didn't really have a
0: didn't so exist <laughs> that's telling also something hopeful about the Europeans pulling more together when it comes to China as well um, because I think um, it's it, it took Russia China cooperation and the war in Ukraine for them to um realize hopefully many of them um how problematic this is all right so then i think uh we are um hitting a point of conclusion in weight of the counter-offensive <laughs> um general ben hodges thank you so much for joining us again we hope um we you will join us again maybe through the summer to comment on how the counter-offensive is going and certainly the moment Crimea has been liberated,
2: and we can uh, plan where you're going to have your housewarming there on Crimea. On the
0: beach, for sure. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content. On our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your broadcasts. From me, Yulia Joja, and my friend, Giselle Donnelly. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.